You've probably never heard of Maximilian Kolbe, but his story is quite incredible. He lived during the Holocaust, and his friar housed 3,000 people that were, uh, that were fleeing from Poland, I believe, and about 2,000 of those people were Jewish, and so you can imagine that uh, he drew the ear of, uh, of the Nazis, and so he ended up himself in Auschwitz, and he did not take many days the food rations, but instead donated them to his fellow inmates, his fellow prisoners. And he barely slept because he would go from room to room checking in on other people that were imprisoned with him and asking if he could pray for them. And his life ended when several people escaped from the prison. And so the Nazis decided because of that, that they would starve 10 people to death. They would just not give them any food anymore to teach a lesson to the other prisoners that they should never escape. And Maximilian Kolbe heard another man say, my wife and my kids will never see me again. And he thought, well... I don't have a wife and a kid, and so I'll die in their place. And he gave his life, uh, starved himself to death instead of this other person. It's a great story of, of service and sacrifice. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, you, you know this statement, maybe if you've grown up at all in the church, then you've heard this before. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And last week we saw that sometimes if we're going to be witnesses to Jesus, then we just need to use the most honest, straightforward words that we can possibly imagine, that we can possibly come up with. Sometimes we just need to tell other people, Jesus died because you're a sinner and he rose again so that you could have eternal life. But we know that service matters and St. Francis makes a great point when he says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And we use that statement oftentimes in Christian circles and church circles as an excuse to never preach the gospel at all. It's like, well, I will preach the gospel and I'll just kind of be a nice person. But here's what people forget about this same St. Francis. He gave up all of his wealth because he thought Jesus wanted him to. Instead of having a life of wealth and his parents were wealthy, he moved to a village and he lived a poor life because he believed that Jesus had said, and Jesus did say this, don't take anything with you to his disciples. And St. Francis said, well, I'm going to take that literally and I will have nothing and totally rely on Jesus. On one pilgrimage, he, he was traveling and he saw a man with, with tattered clothes, a beggar, and, and so he traded clothes with the man. That's what history tells us. Uh, he challenged, this is incredible, I just learned this in studying this week, uh, he challenged the sultan, the sultan in a Muslim territory, and here's what he said to the sultan, he said, here's my challenge to you. We'll both walk into a fire and then we'll know what God is real. I'll go first. So he said to the man, and the sultan said, I, I pass, but he allowed for St. Francis to preach the gospel in places that it had never been allowed to be preached before. Now, when you look at his life and you hear stories like that, it, it gives a different ring a different mindset to the idea of preaching the gospel and if necessary using words. St. Francis wasn't saying don't do anything and that'll be okay. Just kind of be a nice guy. He was saying that your very life and the service that you 
offer to the world should show people what Jesus is like and the sacrifice that Jesus has made. And here's the reality. Service, for as long as Christianity has been around, has been a major part of the religion. Christians throughout the world, and we'll touch on some of these things, have forever served the world in ways that people with no religion or other religions have never and will never because we believe that Jesus was the ultimate servant and if we're going to follow him, it means that we too will serve other people. I can tell you this from personal experience that as we talk about witnessing, as we talk about helping people understand who Jesus is and what Jesus was about and the gospel story and all of those things, the, the, one of the best ways I have in my life been able to witness to the truth of Jesus is simply by serving people. We did this ministry with the youth group uh, many years ago now. It's been a long time ago now, and uh, I don't know whose idea it was. I don't know where it came from, but we did free car washes, and every youth group does a free car wash, and they take donations, but we drew this hard line, and we said, we will take no donations. Like We're just going to wash people's cars. People will offer us a donation, and we'll shut them down and say no, and we discovered that one of two things happened. One, people were almost like offended or annoyed because I think they had a guilty conscience. But the other thing was better. People would say, why are you doing this? And we would just say, Jesus loves us and we want to show you uh, that we love you because of that love. I don't know what the long-term effects were of that ministry, but I can tell you that nobody was mad when they heard the name Jesus, when they thought about the love of Jesus. They accepted it, and it showed something that sometimes the greatest way we can be a witness to Jesus is simply to serve other people. And in the story we'll look at today, we're going to see that in the very earliest moments of the church, they saw the importance of serving in the church. And what we find in church history is that the service within the church always and forever has spilled over and gone out of the church and into the world. The story that we're going to look at is in Acts 6. It's a, a story with great importance for a lot of reasons, but one is that it shows us one of the ways that the early church witnessed. And here's how it begins. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained among the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. First thing I want to say is that when we think of the early church, if you've read the book of Acts, if you have been a Christian a long time, when you think of the earliest church, a couple thousand people are Christians at this point. They're all kind of hanging out. They're meeting in homes together. It's really the first church. When you think about that, you think, if I could just be a part of a church like that, then everything would be great. We have this mentality that the first church, the earliest church, was perfect in some way, that they were void of problems, that everything was always smooth. But right here in one of the earliest stories about how church operated and how they were adjusting to growing into new problems, we see that there are problems. In fact, there's quite a big problem. One group of people in the church think that they are being overlooked. They think they're being discriminated against when it comes to their widows being fed. When a widow was in Jerusalem, 
because their husband had died, a lot of times, often, uh, it was in other places. Their husbands would die, and so they'd come to Jerusalem to spend the rest of their lives in God's city. Those women would be without any income. They would be without an inheritance, because the inheritance often went to the oldest son. And so they'd show up in Jerusalem without anything. And when they became Christians, then they lose the, the synagogue, and they lose the resources that they had available to them. And so their food, literally their eating each day was dependent upon this new thing called the church that had no real organizational structure except those 11 guys plus a new guy are in charge, the early disciples. And so when this takes place, they're going, hey, wait a minute, our group of people, and the NIV it's described as the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews, are not getting food And those Hebraic Jews, those ones perhaps that grew up in Jerusalem, whose lives have been lived in Jerusalem, they are getting food. This is unfair. I'm being overlooked. I'm being discriminated against. My needs are not being met. This is a real problem. And it's not dissimilar to every problem that the church faces today. I think that every problem that churches have had, every church fight that you've ever heard of, every church split that you've ever heard of, any real bad church situation always comes down to one thing. What I want is being overlooked. My needs are being overlooked. My feelings are being overlooked. The way I want things, the way I desire to have things go are being overlooked and we're doing it their way. In the 90s, we had worship wars, and that was basically a fight over music, which, praise God, does not exist like it does uh, today, like it did then. But what does that come down to? It comes down to, I have a preference, and this church is overlooking my preference, and so I'm mad about it, and I'm going to go to another church where my preference is met, where my preference is fulfilled, where I get my way. And sometimes these issues run deeper, but it's always that mentality. My needs, my wants, my desires, my preferences are being overlooked. And I'll tell you that from the very beginning of church, this has caused problems. And if you have this mentality in a church, then you are never going to be a real part of a church. I said not long ago... um, And I think it factors in, but I said not long ago, just in passing, and I thought it was important, and I knew I'd squeeze it into a sermon uh, eventually, but I I said this to somebody, "You're you're not really a part of a church until you know what you don't like about other people in the church, and you still love them and care about them and go to the church anyway. I think that's important. And I think the same is true. You're not really a part of a church until you know the things you don't like about that church, and you go there anyway. Now, you can go to a church and and never learn anything and never really be a part of it and go, well, this place seems magical and perfect, but you're not really a part of that church until you're like, well, I don't like that, and his leadership style stinks, and I wish they would do this a little bit differently, and I can't believe they did that, and that was a stupid idea, you know, and why don't they just do it like I did it at my old church? But I'm still here, and I still love you, and I'm still a part of what's taking place. And Satan, from the very beginning, has threatened to kill the church, to hurt the church, to take the church down with the same mentality. My way is best, and you're not doing it that way. I'm the most important, and my needs aren't being met. So I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm going to complain about it. 
And so the first thing, this is just a side note, just recognize that our church will never be a perfect church. Recognize that our church will never do everything right. Recognize that we have no intention on doing things your way all the time, nor do we have an intention of doing things my way all the time. There's plenty that we do here that if I just could do my way all the time, we would do it a different way. It's not about our way. It's about doing what God wants and hopefully being you know, pretty good, but we'll never be perfect. And so be a part of the church anyway. Now, here's the cool part, and I hope we have a church like this. The early disciples, they don't just dismiss the complaints and go, figure it out, you're an idiot, we have other things to do, this is stupid, get your own food, or anything like that. They listen to the complaint, and then they respond to the complaint. Now, I want to point this out in our church. I think we've done a great job of this. Uh, It's another side note. But in our church, I think we have, have cultivated a culture in which you can say anything to me about what you don't like and know that I will listen to you and respond in a way that I think is appropriate as I get other leadership involved in the conversation. I've said this before, but somebody said to me not that long ago, maybe a year ago now, hey, you ask us to think about communion and what it means on a Sunday, and then you don't give us any time to do that after that song that we play during communion. I thought, well, we should. And so we just made a simple change. I think that in a good church, not only do you know that there's things that you don't like, but you should be able to express those things in a caring, loving, valuable way and have those complaints heard. It may not always change things, and you have to be okay with that, but you should have them heard. And that's exactly how it was in the early church because this is what happened. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. Now at first glance, just first glance, it seems that the disciples are very dismissive of the importance of this ministry that's taking place in the church. That phrase, wait on tables, seems demeaning, it seems disparaging, it seems like they're looking down on this role and this, this important ministry that's taking place in the church. But here's what I think. I think that's because we as Americans view waiting on tables as something kind of lesser. No offense if you're a waiter or waitress. I don't. Um, I did it for a while. But, but I think we think, well, it's just a, a, somebody serving tables. Because what you have to notice is that while they say it would not be right for them to wait on tables, they seem to take it pretty seriously that the tables are actually waited upon, if I can say it like that. In fact, notice this now. They say, we shouldn't neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. We should be praying and ministering to other people. But here's the plan. We're going to elect seven people. And they need to be known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That's not looking down on the role of waiting tables, right? I mean, they're going, we need to find guys that are godly, that are full of the Holy Spirit, that have been walking with the Lord and for the Lord and have been able to demonstrate and prove that. We need to find guys that, that are 
wisdom, wise, that, that know the will of God and understand it and are able to put it into practice to wait on these tables. And so as you read the story on first blush, it's like, wait, the disciples, the apostles, they're kind of diminishing this. And people's lives literally are dependent upon this ministry. But when you see how they actually respond, what they're saying is it wouldn't be right for us to do this ministry, but it is right for godly men to lead this ministry. Now, there's a couple of things that are really important in just this section right here about the importance of service when it comes to being a witness. And the first is that the disciples had a role. These apostles had a role, and their role was to seek the will of God for that church, for this new thing called Christianity, for the people in that church. It was to seek the will of God, to entreat God, to ask God to move. That was one of their jobs, and their other job was to go around the countryside and say, hey, this is what God has said. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. Jesus died. He rose again. We are witnesses to these things. They had a specific job to do. And they knew that if people didn't step up and serve, then they would not be able to do that job the way that God had called them to do it. And so they put a high importance on finding godly men filled with the Holy Spirit and wise to do the role that they cannot do and continue to be faithful to what God has called them to. And here's the thing. I just wonder this sometimes in our church and every church, and we're better than most. What things are other people in our church not able to do because you're not doing the things that you're supposed to do? See, one of the key parts of witnessing is that you do your job so that I can do my job so that they can do their job so that they can do their job and they can do their job and they can do their job. And a perfect church, and it's something I pray for almost every single week, a perfect church, not perfect, I already said we can't be, a good church, a great church is a church where 100% of the people are doing 100% of the work. And you've heard this stat that it gets said a couple of different ways, but, but there's like this 10-90 rule. It's often said that 10% of the people in any organization will do 90% of the work. 90% of the people will do 10% of the work. But in a church, if it's going to function the way that God has called it to, then 100% of the people need to be serving God in the way that God has called them to serve God, so that, and 100% of the people should be doing all the work. And so the question is, as we look at this story, the first question is what is not happening because you're not doing your job and not freeing somebody else up to do their job? I can tell you that if some of you would step up, I could preach better sermons. That's just the honest truth. I could preach better sermons if some of you stepped up and did things that you are able to do, that you are good at doing, that you uh, are equipped to do, that you've been called to do, that God wants you to do for our church. You have, I promise you this because I have very few skills, you have a unique skill set that I do not have. And you should be using those things to serve our church so that everybody else can do the things that they should be doing to serve our church. And when it happens, this is, this is what's pertinent to our sermon today. When that happens and everybody starts serving and everybody starts fulfilling their role and everybody starts doing the things that they can do and that they're called to do, 
then more and more happens and we become a better and better witness to the world as a church. Now here's the other part that's really cool. Certain ministries in the church need people to oversee them. Godly people. And these disciples, they're like, we just need seven men so that we don't have to think about this anymore. We don't have to talk about it anymore. They can just take over this ministry and and we'll know that it's going to happen, that everybody's going to get the food that they need, that everything's going to uh, be uh, taken care of. And I can tell you, this is what I've learned in my years as a pastor, that there is nothing more beneficial to a church than a person who takes ownership of ministry. Not just does the things that they're asked to do, but steps up and says, I will make sure that these things are done and nobody's going to have to ask me again. I will do them because I'm passionate about them. I will do them because I'm called to them. I will do them because I'm equipped for it. I will step up. I will do my role. And Chad will not have to ask me to make sure I get the right things done, to make sure that it actually got done, all that. I can tell you in our church, we have many people that, that fit that category, and our church is much stronger because of those people. Everybody in a church should serve, but every church needs certain people who serve in a way that makes sure that things are getting done. It needs godly people who say, this will happen and nobody has to hold me accountable to it because I'm the one who is accountable before God. The story continues in Acts 6, 5, and 6. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Permenus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, if you question, if you're still questioning, is waiting on tables an important part of a church's ministry? Is it really as valuable as the preaching and the teaching that the apostles were going to do. All you need to do is look at that first name on the list, a man named Stephen. We'll encounter Stephen in the sermon next week. In chapter seven, we're gonna look at Stephen. But here's a couple things you need to know about Stephen. First, what it says here, he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That's a good compliment, especially when it gets recorded in the Bible, right? I mean, they weren't like, well, there's a bunch of guys who are really good and we'll make them pastors. And then there's a bunch of guys that are just okay. We'll let them wait on the tables. We don't know much about Stephen, but we know that, that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to see that Stephen was a Bible scholar and Stephen was one of the most elegant preachers of all time. He gets one sermon and then he's killed for his faith. We'll see that he's an incredibly gifted speaker and we'll see that he has about as much faith as anybody as the Holy Spirit moves in his life. And he's one of the seven that are put over waiting on tables. And it's really easy to dismiss this story and go, well, obviously the apostles are the most important part of this story and they need to do their job and everybody else is just going to fill in and, and do their you know, work so that the apostles can do their job. But when you see the name Stephen, it gives weight to how important the service within the church was and how much 
of an emphasis the apostles were placing on it. They said, it's not right for us to wait tables. But ministries like this are so important and so valuable to the church that we need godly, godly, godly people to step up and make sure that they take place. It lists these other guys, and we don't know much about them, but just notice that last part, that these uh, people were presented to the apostles, and the apostles then laid their hands on them and prayed. They commissioned them for a service that was important and valuable and that they knew mattered. And you have to see, I hope this is coming through, you have to see the weight that the apostles are giving to this and that the other people within the church were placing on it as they picked these incredible men, at least one incredible man. We don't have any complaints about the others, so they must have done an okay job. Your service within the church is extremely valuable. I don't think that I can state in words how important it is that you do the job that you're called to do at Creekside Bible Church. You must step up and you must serve. And some of you I know have been called to step up and not just serve, but to make sure that certain ministries are functioning and working the way that they ought to be functioning and working. Here's the fact about the ministry of the word and, and waiting on tables, these two phrases that are used for ministry in this section. We can minister at tables or we can minister from the pulpit. But both in this section are important and they're valuable. They matter to the church. And because they matter to the church, they matter to the world. Because one of the greatest ways that we can witness is to build the strength of the church so that when people look at it, they go, man, those people are godly and they love each other and there's community and great things are happening and they're reaching out and they're helping the hurting and they're helping the broken. These things must take place if the church is going to be a witness. And so you must serve for that to happen. One author said this, serving the word and tables are equally valuable. And then notice Acts 6, 7, the end of the story. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Just put it together. They pick men to make sure that the tables are waited on. The tables are waited on. The word of God spreads, and people become Christians in large numbers, even people that wouldn't, you would never have expected to become Christians, Jewish priests. Jewish priests who would have been anti-Christianity, many of them, and gone, wait a minute, you're trying to change our religion? You're trying to leave our religion? You're trying to hurt our religion? You're claiming the Messiah's come, but I, I've been taught that the Messiah will come in a different way. This goes against everything. Even those guys became Christians, and it was connected to the service of these seven godly men. There's several things that are important about serving. The first is this. It matters both inside and outside of the church. In this story, the witnessing happens almost secondhand, right? The people serve the church, and then the apostles are able to go out and be missionaries and serve and tell people the words of Jesus. 
And so you can witness simply by setting up coffee on Sunday morning. You can witness, hint, hint, by coming and helping us with fun in the park on Saturday. You can witness by putting new wheels on that big blue thing that we bring in on Sunday mornings with all of our equipment. You can witness through these things. And some of you would be much better at witnessing through these things than I am. Hint, hint. Your service within the church allows for people other people in the church to do other things. And as we all do the things that God wants, the church is built and the world looks at the church and goes, wow, there's a difference there. That's something I want to be a part of. They have hope and peace and joy and love and I need Jesus too. The Bible says that the church is the representative of Jesus on the earth. We are called his body multiple times in the New Testament. Really, the idea that the Bible gives us, and this is scary, but the idea that the Bible gives us is that when a person is looking for Jesus, they should be able to look at the local church and understand what he is like. Every local church should be a witness to the character, the nature, the service, the gifts of Jesus. I don't think it happens today because 10% of the people are doing 90% of the work. It's not that bad in our church, thankfully. We have a much higher percentage of people who are doing work here. But nationally, 10% of the people are doing 90% of the work in churches. And so when you walk into most churches, you may see bits and pieces of Jesus. Come out quiet like I meant it to. But you may see bits and pieces of Jesus, but you're not going to see a great picture of what he is like. And so the witness of the church is diminished because people are just showing up on a Sunday, singing a few songs, hearing a sermon, saying, do I feel good about that? And then going away. But when every person in the church is serving using their God-given gifts and abilities, then we look more like Jesus and people can go, what's Jesus like? It's a lot like what you see at Creekside Bible Church. That's the hope. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you're serving and taking care of the people in your church and helping your church, then you start to show off the fact that you are a disciple of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 9, 12, and 13, the service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Paul says, as you serve, you not only meet needs, but it causes other people to praise God for the work that he is doing in the world. You are witnessing to the truth and the grace and the love and all the good things of Jesus. Then the Bible is just ripe with language about taking care of those in the church. It's an important expression of the Christian faith. Excuse me. Acts 43, 4, 33 through 35. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy person among them 
From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Where's that in the church today? And how great of a witnessing tool is that? Can you imagine? Hey, hey, Larry, where'd your house go? Oh, I sold it so that other people in my church could have their needs met. That's when you're showing Jesus off. That's when you're a real witness. People will go, what? What type of love must you have experienced? What type of grace must have come into your life? What type of forgiveness and peace must you now know? What type of hope and eternity must you have if you're willing to sell a house? Just give the money to your church so that other people can have their needs met. That's witnessing. And we forget that. And here's the thing, I said this earlier, but the the service within the church has always spilled over and gone outside of the church. It's one of the great things about serving others is that it starts within a church, but it spills over. In Acts 3, 6, it says this. uh, This is Peter talking to a man who's a beggar. and, And here's what he says. Silver or gold, I do not have you, but what I do give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And this beggar who had never been able to walk stands up. Starts hanging out with them. In James 1.27, we read this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The religion of Christianity has always been a religion of service and the service has always started in the church and then spilled over out of the church. In the second and third centuries, It was a common practice for people to take babies they didn't want due to disabilities, uh, undesired gender, etc. And abortion was not as easy as it is in America today. So after they were born, they would just take them into the woods and leave them there to die. And Christians became notorious for going out into the woods looking for babies that they could then adopt as their own. Isn't that incredible? That's service. And when you see it, you can't help but go, wait a minute. Why? 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 And the answer is Jesus. Christian people, you may not know this, led the way in ending slavery. I said that. But they also helped in the Underground Railroad right here in our own country, risking their own lives to help slaves gain their freedom. Numberless Christians died protecting Jews in the Holocaust. May not know this either. Sunday school was started to help kids learn to read. Did you know that? It wasn't just a teach the Bible hour when it first began. It was about helping kids who weren't getting the proper education learn to read. All around our world today, wells are being drilled in places where they do not have clean water, and it's being done by Christians We buy Hope Coffee as our coffee when you drink coffee here. And and Hope Coffee, all the money goes to Honduras Missionary who gives that money to local churches so that they can serve their community by building beds and putting on roofs and giving people bathrooms and sometimes even building full houses for people that would otherwise be homeless. The two biggest disaster relief organizations in the world are both Christian organizations. 
We support an organization called Embrace Oregon right here in Oregon that's working to make sure that when kids are going into foster care, they feel welcomed and loved and they have some sense of hope and normalcy despite leaving their regular homes, their normal homes, the ones they're used to. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Hospitals all over our great nation and all over the world have one thing in common. They have Christian names. It's because they were started by Christians who wanted to serve the hurting and the broken, the sick, the unhealthy. The idea of the modern hospital is a Christian idea. And you could go just about anywhere, at least in our country, and find free meals because Christians provide them their own cost. Recently, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association immediately, I read this, I'm quoting, sent trained chaplains with the Billy Graham Rapid Response Team to Orlando to offer emotional and spiritual care to victims of the attack at the Pulse nightclub. If people are hurting, it's the truth. Christians are helping. Everywhere and always. It's been that way since Christianity was born. Because service within the church spills out of the church because we want to be witnesses to the realities, the truth of Jesus. We are still here, this quote from another author, the church who loves justice. Don't be fooled by the media or your Facebook feed or by fanatics with hateful words or signs who claim to represent a God of mercy. There is still a church who takes a stand for the oppressed, who defends human dignity, who articulates their views with total respect for the opposing side. Christianity has always been a religion of service and it is one of the greatest ways that we can witness. And here's the other part. When we serve, we look more like Jesus. It's right in line with the ministry that Jesus did. In Matthew 20, 28, it says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come to earth so that he could gain. Jesus came to earth as a servant. And if you are going to be his follower, also known as a Christian, then you too will be serving within the church and without. Jesus healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he hung out with people that nobody else wanted to hang out with. And if we're going to be his followers, then we must follow Jesus in that. I can make a claim that beyond love, the greatest thing that we should be known for if we're truly going to follow Jesus is service. Service that comes at our own costs and gains nothing for us. For God so loved the world, the famous Bible verse says. And because of that, because we know the love of God, Christians throughout the centuries have sought to love the world too. And they start by serving and meeting the needs of people within the church and moving their church forward. And it always, 100% of the time, since the Christian movement began with 11 disciples, It is spilled over into the world. And then there's this last part, and it's the part that I've already mentioned that I think is so valuable as we think of witnessing. It leads to the question, why? This isn't biblical. It's just something that I know and I've experienced. But the question, why, always comes when you actually serve. Not when you're kind of nice to people, 
Not when you do just enough to make yourself feel good about serving, but when you dive into service, making sure that the tables are weighted so that people have food, making sure that people have what they need inside and outside the church. When you live a life that looks like Jesus, then people can't help but wonder, why? Why? In John 4, we read this story of Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman. And Jesus asked her for a glass of water. That's not really service, but it served a purpose in her life because she was disenfranchised. She'd had a bunch of husbands. She was a woman, so no man would really talk to her. She was a Samaritan, so no Jew would talk to her. And so Jesus does this simple, simple, simple act of service. He asks her for something. And the woman's like, why are you talking to me? And Jesus leads her to himself through a long conversation. And so the question for you becomes, how should you be serving? How should you be serving within our church? And how should you be serving those who don't know Jesus? What need can you meet for your neighbor? What need can you meet for the people in your community that are hurting and broken? What needs can you meet? Because if you truly want to be a witness of Jesus, you must serve. I would make the case that you can't be a witness to Jesus without serving. Nobody's going to believe you if you go, I follow try to live my life like this Jewish carpenter who lived a couple thousand years ago. Oh, what did he do? Oh, well, he came out of heaven to earth. He lived a sinless life, and then he willingly died for our sins as a servant, as a humble servant, giving himself for us. Oh, but you don't do anything like that, so how do you really follow that person? You're not believable until you're serving. And so I ask one more time, and then I'll pray for us. How should you be serving? Inside of the church or out, how should you be serving? Lord, I know how wonderful it is to serve, but I also know, God, how, how great the effect has been of my service in the past. And I just want every person, God, that sits before me today to serve you. And I want them to do that because I know the benefits it will have in their lives. And I want them to do that, God, because I know how incredibly impactful it can be, God, on our church and on our world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help every person before me to be able to answer that, or answer that question. How should they be serving, Lord? I pray that you would push upon their hearts and their minds the answer to that question. And that today, Lord, as we finish this service, 
that, that they would not just walk out of here the same person, but they would know as they leave today that they need to have a conversation with me about something that they ought to be doing in our church, that they would have a conversation, God, with their neighbors and say, hey, I want to do this for you, that they would step up and be a part of a, a, a local outreach or local nonprofit, and they would be involved in that, God, that perhaps some of these people here today would start their own ministries that hurt, that help the hurting and the broken, God, because they want to be your followers and they want to be witnesses to you to the very ends of the earth. God, let us be a church of service so that we can show the world what a wonderful servant we serve, God. I pray these things in your name. Amen.